We come now to our introduction to systematic theology. Last Lord's Day, we introduced a problem in our study of the eternal decree of God, and that is the so-called problem of evil. The problem, we are told, is that the existence of God cannot be harmonized with the existence of evil. For atheists, the existence of evil is proof that God does not exist. For agnostics, the evidence of evil may not be enough to convince them that there is no God, but it's certainly not the God of the Bible who is good, all-knowing, and all-powerful. And even for some believers, while they may not deny God's existence or deny that he is good, they end up restricting his power and or his knowledge in the attempt to get God off the hook, so to speak. And they'll introduce philosophical ideas into the Bible in order to make it work, like the theory of free will. But of course, the question we need to ask is whether or not God was even on the hook to begin with. And we will get to that answer before we end this series. <laughs> but before we do, let's quickly review what we noted last week about some of these so-called solutions to our so-called problem. Again, for the atheist, the solution is simply to deny God, to get rid of him. We don't have to worry about harmonizing the existence of God with the existence of evil if God doesn't exist to begin with. But does that work? Well, no, because as Greg Bonson asked, the question, logically speaking, is how the unbeliever can make sense of taking evil seriously. Not just simply something that's inconvenient or unpleasant or contrary to his or her desires. What philosophy of value or morality can the unbeliever offer which will render it meaningful to condemn some atrocity as objectively evil? And yet they must assert the evil, the existence of evil in this world, that is the atheist, in order to turn around and make it a problem for us. But as Bonson points out, they're the ones who actually have the problem because they can't even tell us what evil is in the first place once they take God out of the picture. So atheism doesn't work, so we can toss that to the side. But as we have already noted, even for us as believers, there still seems to be this problem. How do we harmonize the belief in a good God with the existence of evil? And as we noted, perhaps one of the most common solutions is, is to introduce this notion of free will. Free will being defined as the freedom of indifference. That is, that when man is faced with incompatible courses of action, he is able to choose any course of action just as easily as he could any other course of action. He has the ability to choose between different possible courses of action unimpeded. His choices are free from any control, any influence, whether internally, externally, physically, or divine. But does this solve the problem? Well, we began to see last week that it doesn't for various reasons. For start starters, the Bible never defines our will in such a way. But you may say, but hold on, Jason. The Bible says that we have a will, that we make choices. For example, Joshua tells Israel, Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the Bible clearly talks about choice, right, Jason? Well, of course it does. But as we noted last week, saying that men make choices is one thing. Saying that men make choices without being influenced or controlled by anything internally, externally, physical, divine, is an entirely different matter altogether. The same Bible that puts out this general call to man to choose God is the same Bible that says in Psalm 14 that the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there are anyone who understands, who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. If that sounds familiar, it's because the Apostle Paul would go on to quote that very text, along with other Psalms, to argue in chapter 3 of Romans that the whole world, Jew and Gentile, is under the dominion of sin. Their minds are all darkened, and the wills of all are in bondage to sin, slaves to sin. So how do you reconcile these two things? How do you reconcile Joshua asking people to choose with the Psalms telling us that everyone is enslaved to sin and your minds are darkened? Well, it's actually quite simple. Understand that when Joshua used the word choose, he was not making some deep philosophical statement about the nature of choices. That wasn't his point. Whereas the Psalmist, and then eventually Paul, are making that deep philosophical point. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. For example, Jesus puts out the general call to all. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In verse 28, he is putting out the invite. Like Joshua, he is setting before the eyes of men a course of action. But in doing so, is Jesus suggesting with these words that men can freely choose this course or that course free from any control or any influence of any sort? Absolutely not. All you have to do is just go three verses back. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now comes verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are people capable of choosing Jesus Christ and coming to him? Yes. Otherwise, the Lord wouldn't have put out the invitation. We see that in verse 28. But with those, wor but with those words, come to me, is Jesus making some deeper philosophical point about the nature of our choices? He's not. That deeper philosophical point is addressed in the verse right before it which says this, no one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It is Christ who is free and sovereign to reveal God or not reveal God to each individual as he chooses to do. 
We see this again in John chapter 6. Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Aha! Gotcha, Jason. There it is. Jesus invites people to come to him. Well, of course. But again, by such words, is Jesus suggesting that all men are able to come to him unimpeded, free from any control or influence, divine, physical, internal, or external? Again, the answer is no. Because after seeing the Jews complain about how difficult his teachings were, Jesus answers the Jews in verse 43, saying, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Even some of Jesus' disciples struggled with Jesus' teaching. And then he then turns to them and answers them in verse 61. Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You see, there is where your philosophical question about the freedom of the will is answered. God obviously has created man with the potential to choose and to come to him. But having the potential to do something does not address the question of whether that potential is unimpeded or not. And simply pointing to verses that use the word choice or choose or will does not answer that question. In fact, it begs the question. The question being, how exactly are you defining will? Because remember, it's one thing to say that man has the capacity to choose and to act. It's an entirely different thing to argue that his capacity to choose and act are free from any control or influence. Here, Crampton writes, quote, Christian theology does not deny that Adam, and all men after him for that matter, had a quote-unquote free will in the sense of free moral agency. Men are not rocks, they're not machines. All men think and choose in this sense of the term, otherwise they cannot act. Men choose to do what they want to think and to do. In fact, they could do no other than choose. What Christi Christian theology does deny is that man has the freedom of indifference. His ability to choose is always governed by factors, his own intellections, habits, and so forth. And ultimately, all his choices are determined by the eternal decree of God. Gordon Clark writes, perhaps the matter can be made clearer by stating, in other words, precisely what the question is. The question is, is the will free? The question is not, is there a will? Calvinism most assuredly holds that Judas acted voluntarily. He chose to betray Christ. He did so willingly. No question is raised as to whether or not he had a will. What the Calvinists ask is whether that will was free. Are there factors or powers that determine a person's choice, or is the choice causeless? Could Judas have chosen otherwise? 
Not could he have done otherwise had he chosen, but could he have chosen in opposition to God's foreordination? Acts 4.28 indicates that he could not. The Armenians frequently talk as if the will and free will are synonyms. Then when Calvinism denies free will, they charge that men are reduced to puppets. Puppets, of course, are inanimate dolls mechanically controlled by strings. If the opponents had only read the Puritans, if they had only known what Calvinism is, they could have spared themselves the onus of making this blunder. Choice and necessity are therefore not incompatible. Instead of prejudging the question by confusing choice with free choice, one should give an explicit definition of choice. The adjective could be justified only afterward, if at all. Choice then may be defined as least sufficiently for the present purpose as a mental act that consciously initiates and determines a further action. The ability to have chosen otherwise is an irrelevant matter and has no place in the definition. Such an ability could only be argued after the definition has been made. We cannot permit the Armenians to settle the whole matter simply by selecting a definition. A choice is still deliberate volition, even if it could not have been different. End quote. Note, man's ability to choose is always governed by factors, and most notably, the factor that God has eternally decreed everything that comes to pass. Man is simply not free in the sense of the theory that free will argues. Free will, in a sense, is actually an atheist position. It is but one theory of the will that takes God out of the picture. And while the atheists certainly have no issue doing that, Sadly, this is then adopted by believers in order to solve some quote-unquote problem that doesn't exist in the first place. Well, Jason, if that is then the case, then doesn't that make God the author of sin and make him responsible for sin? Well, no, let's address this question of God being author of sin. The Westminster Divines write in chapter 3 of the Confession, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And there are a number of passages that the divines cite as evidence that God is not the author of sin. James 1.13 let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. And then verse 17 of that same chapter, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In 1 John 1, 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Well, the divines would also address this in chapter 5 on providence. They write, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, in the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according 
to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in this providence that it extended itself even to the first fall and to all other sins of angels and men, and not that by bare permission, but such as have joined it with a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature, and not from God, who being most wise, uh, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. End quote. So notice very carefully what they say. In paragraph two, they acknowledge that God is the quote-unquote first cause. And it is by this first cause that all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. And this extends to everything, including paragraph four, the first fall, the first sin, and all other sins of angels and of men. But then notice also in paragraph two, they speak of second causes. They use this same phrase in chapter three as well. And so there is a distinction being made between first cause versus second cause. And the question we need to raise is to which of these phrases is the author of sin phrase related to and how? Now at this point, <clears throat> I wanna quote something from Clark and it's rather lengthy, but in all the stuff I've read, it just, just handles the better than anything I've read. And, it, you know, why write it when he's got it? And he does it so in a very understandable manner. So listen to how he explains this. Let it be unequivocally said that this view, this view that we're teaching from the confession, certainly makes God the cause of sin. God is the sole ultimate cause of everything. There is absolutely nothing independent of God. He alone is the eternal being. He alone is omnipotent. He alone is sovereign. Remember, this is all JP lesson stuff. Let's never forget that. Not only is Satan his creature, but every detail of history was eternally in his plan before the world began, and he willed it that it should all come to pass. The men and angels predestined to eternal life and those foreordained to everlasting death are particularly and unchangeably designed. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Election and reprobation are equally ultimate. God determined that, God determined that Christ should die. He determined as well that Judas should betray him. There was never the remotest possibility that something different could have happened. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, Psalm 135, 6. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 45.7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made all things for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of evil. In Romans 9, 19 through 21, 
You shall say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Romans eleven twenty two. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. So Clark goes on to ask, so one is permitted to ask, however, whether the phrase cause of sin is equivalent to the phrase author of sin. Is the latter phrase used to deny God's universal causality? Obviously not for the same people, that is the Westminster Divines, who affirm causality deny the authorship. They must have intended a difference between these two. An illustration is close at hand. God is not the author of this book that Clark was writing, as the Arminians would be the first to admit. But he is its ultimate cause, as the Bible teaches. Yet I am the author. Authorship, therefore, is one kind of cause, but there are other kinds. The author of a book is its immediate cause, but God is its ultimate cause. This distinction between first and secondary causation, which is explicitly maintained in the confession, has not always been appreciated even by those who are in general agreement. And he goes on, when accordingly the discussion comes to God being the author of sin, one must understand the question to be, is God the immediate cause of sin? Or more clearly, does God commit sin? This is a question concerning God's holiness. Now, it should be evident that God no more commits sin than he is writing these words. Although the betrayal of Christ was foreordained from eternity as a means of effecting the atonement, it was Judas, not God, who betrayed Christ. The secondary causes in history are not eliminated by divine causality, but rather they are made certain. And the acts of these secondary causes, whether they be righteous or sinful, are to be immediately referred to the agents. And it is these agents who are responsible. God is neither responsible nor sinful, even though he is the only ultimate cause of everything. He is not sinful because in the first place, whatever God does is just and right. It is just and right simply in virtue of the fact that he does it. Justice or righteousness is not a standard that is external to God, to which God is obligated to submit. Righteousness is what God does. And since God caused Judas to betray Christ, this causal act is righteous and not sinful. By definition, God cannot sin. At this point, it must be particularly pointed out that God's causing a man to sin is not sin. There is no law superior to God, which forbids him to decree sinful acts. Sin presupposes a law, for sin is lawlessness. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law, but God is ex lex. True it is that if a man, a created being, should cause or try to cause another man to sin, this attempt would be sinful. The reason is plain. The relation of one man to another is entirely different from the relation of God to any man. God is the creator, man is the creature. And the relation of a man to the law is equally different from the relation of God to the law. What holds one in one situation does not hold 
and the other. God has absolute and unlimited rights over all created things. Of the same lump, he can make one vessel for honor and one for dishonor. The clay has no claims on the potter. Among men, on the contrary, rights are limited. The idea that God is above law can be explained in another particular. The laws that God imposes on men do not apply to the divine nature. They are applicable only to human conditions. For example, God cannot steal. Not only because whatever he does is right, but because he owns everything. There is no one to steal from. Thus the law that defines sin and benches human conditions and has no relevance to a sovereign creator. As God cannot sin, so in the next place, God is not responsible for sin, even though he decrees it. And just a quick side note, think of the word responsibility. What do you hear in that word at the beginning of that? Response. You're responsible because you're accountable to someone. God's not responsible because who's he accountable to? There is no one higher. Well, Clark then gives an example from Scripture. Listen very closely to this story from 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Jehoshaphat allied himself with Ahab. And Ahab has his sights set on Ramoth Gilead, and he wants to go to war. Jehoshaphat proposes that they seek God in the matter. Let's see what God has to say about this before we go. And so they bring in prophets, and one by one, all 400 of these men tell them what they want to hear, saying, verse 5, go up, for God will deliver, you, uh, deliver it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat said, verse 6, Is there still not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me. He is always evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imla. And then in verse 12 we read, Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encouraged the king. Therefore, please let your word be like their word and speak encouragement. In other words, just go along with the crowd. Speak a word of encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever my God says, that I will speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And he said, go and prosper, and they shall be delivered into your hand. So the king said to him, he, he, he caught on to this sarcastic tone from Micaiah. How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would prophesy good concerning me? Not prophesy good, but evil. Then Micaiah said this, and listen to what he says. He's done being sarcastic with him. Now here's, here's the truth. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of he heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up? that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead. So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. 
Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster against you. Notice the clear distinction being made here in this story. There's the first or ultimate cause. Verse 22, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets. But notice the secondary cause. Verse 20, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, which, in what way? that I will be a lying spirit in the mouth. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him, go out and do it. Do you see the distinction? It's not the Lord who was lying to these people. It was the spirit. But he did so at the direction of the Lord. So that it can be said that the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets. Think of uh, Joseph as another example, a story that you're probably more familiar with. Joseph's brothers hated him. They were jealous. Remember, they threw him in the pit. They were contemplating killing him. They changed their minds. They sold him into slavery. He ends up as in prison down in Egypt. But then through a series of events, God's province and care of him, he gets exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. And his brothers have no idea this is going on. So then his brothers end up going through a famine. They make their way down to Egypt to get help. And guess who they run into? King Joseph. Of course, they didn't recognize him at first. He, you know, has a dinner with him, and you know, you know the story. But he ends up saving his brothers in Israel. And he ends up saying this: But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. It wasn't God who desired evilly to kill Joseph or sell him off. His brothers did it, and they're responsible for it. But what you meant as evil, and it was evil, God meant for good. It was all part of the plan. It was all part of the design. And so that brings me to this closing statement. You remember the... the propositions that we presented that people say are irreconcilable, that can't be worked out. That is, God is all good, God is all powerful, yet evil exists. How do we reconcile that problem? Well, Greg Bonson says that the apparent paradox created by these propositions is re readily resolved by adding this fourth premise. This is the fourth premise you need to add that people don't think about. And that is this, that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists. Isn't that what we just read? Isn't that what we just heard in the story of Joseph? There's a reason for it. Remember the question I ended with last week. If God knows all things and he knew Adam would fall before he created Adam, why did he proceed to create Adam? He knew Adam was going to mess it up, so why do it? He didn't have to create Adam, but he did. Why? 
because there's a reason, there's a purpose. What is that purpose? What is the end game in all of this? I'm going to give you another week to think about that. The next week, Lord's Day, uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll finally get to asking that final question: What is the ultimate purpose? That's that's the solution. That's the answer to this so-called problem of evil. That there is a morally sufficient reason why God has decreed all of this. There is an end game. There is a purpose, and we're going to get to that purpose next Lord's Day, Lord willing, via the predestination of men and angels.